please open your Bibles with me to the third psalm? This is a psalm of David, where we find David expressing a rather intense desperation. And the subtitle of the psalm gives us uh, an insight into the historical context of this psalm and why David is so desperate. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And let me just remind you of the circumstances that are being described by this brief description. Absalom as is stated, was one of David's children, was one of David's sons. And Absalom wanted to be king. He wanted to have the throne and take over the entire kingdom. But in order to do this, he had to manipulate the people and orchestrate the circumstances to take over uh, by force. So first by manipulation, then by force. If you recall... What he did is he stood at the gate, one of the gates of Jerusalem where the majority of people go in and out, and he would talk to the people, he would judge some of their cases, and he endeared himself to the people by being with them. Yeah, David the king, he's in his palace sitting on his throne, but Absalom is among us. Absalom is with us. Absalom knows my name. Absalom knows me. David doesn't know me. So Absalom won the hearts of the people, And he won the hearts of some of David's counselors also. And they went out from Jerusalem, Absalom and his counselors, and they were gathering a force, gathering an army to come back to Jerusalem. And so David fled with his family and with his counselors. He fled his own capital city. He fled from Jerusalem. And it's in this context of fleeing from Absalom, fleeing from Jerusalem, his own city, and fleeing from his own son, that David pens uh, Psalm Three, Let's read what the Spirit inspired David to say and to record in the third psalm. David says, O Lord, Jehovah, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked." Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. By way of an outline to study this passage, please consider with me three simple points and then three applications afterwards. The first of those three points is the evicted king. The evicted king. We see in Psalm 3 the thoughts, the, the, the words of a king who has been banished from his own palace and his own fortress, his own capital city. David is far away 
from his home. He's away from his bed. He's away from his safe place. He's been kicked out. He's been expelled, and he's homeless now. And David contemplates the capital and the country. He contemplates Jerusalem and beyond. And he says in verses 1 and 2, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. There is a a growing movement, an anti-David, pro-Absalom movement. And they are... Their opinion of David is expressed in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And what we see here is people judging David and judging Absalom by their outward circumstances. They look at David and they say, here's a king who can't even defend his own capital. And here's Absalom, the young man who knows us all, the young king, the strong king, and he's, he's marching Absalom is winning. David is losing. So clearly, the people are of the opinion God has favored Absalom, not David. What kind of a king is David? He's a coward. He's not even defending his own city. He's fled. He's running away. Look at him go. Surely God is not favoring him. And this represents the mindset of someone who equates outward circumstances with God's blessing and favor. They think that because Absalom is popular and successful and David is not, therefore God favors Absalom and not David. You can see this mindset in the next psalm, Psalm 4. Psalms 3 and 4 are very similar. And look at verses 6 and 7 with me in Psalm 4. Verse 6 says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now, that sounds like a very normal even innocent request, Lord, bless us, shine your face on us. But what do the people want? What do they consider blessing? Verse 7, David says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. So there are some people who think, when I have the things I want and things are going well for me, as represented by wine and grain here, then God is blessing me. Then God's favor is upon me. But David knows in verse 7, you've put more joy in my heart than when those are abounding in other people's lives. David knows there's something more than just earthly blessings and outward circumstances. So let's go back to Psalm 3. And we find that, again, David has the same perspective. While many are saying of him in verse 2, there's no salvation for him. Look at this guy. He's running from his own capital city. Verse 3 shows David's very different opinion. He says, but you, O Lord are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. David doesn't say, God, why is this happening to me? He says, I know that you are with me even in these circumstances. David knows that though his stomach may be growling and he has no comfortable bed, it doesn't mean that God has not blessed him or that God is not favoring him. David is trusting in the Lord. He trusts in God's promises. And he cries out, therefore, because he trusts. In verse 4, he cries out, I cried out aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. God from above and God on earth in Jerusalem in the temple has answered David's prayer. So David is expelled. He's evicted. Other people are shaming him, but he trusts in the Lord and he prays to the Lord and trusting in the Lord and praying in the Lord. Then what does he do? Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Look at Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, 
I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You might say, David, how can you sleep? You know Absalom's taking your throne right now. You know he's taking over the city right now. You know he's doing horrible things right now. And you know the people support him in this. David, look at us. We might die out here in the wilderness. How can you be sleeping? David says, the Lord sustained me. I cried aloud to the Lord. I set sail to my petition. I sent it to God and he has answered me. I lay down and slept and I woke again for you make me dwell in safety. Using Psalm 3 and 4 together. Now, what was David's petition? What was that thing that he asked God to do? We see it in verse 7. David cries out and gives, his, give, gives words to his petition. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. So David is asking God to fight on his behalf. There's a battle coming. There is a struggle on the way. Absalom is actively taking over the kingdom. And David says to God, Fight for me. Which sounds like young David, doesn't it, when he confronted Goliath. And he said, it's not the sword and the spear, but the battle belongs to the Lord. We see here the same perspective in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And therefore, in verse 6, David's perspective is, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So the first verses, you see this swelling of opposition. Many have arisen. Many are encircling me. But by verse 6, David says, I will not fear them. I will not be afraid of them because God fights for me and salvation belongs to the Lord. And what happened in that history? Well, we know that some of David's loyal counselors had infiltrated Absalom's uh, ring of counsel his war council, and they gave to Absalom certain, uh, certain advice, a plan, and Absalom accepted that plan, and it became his undoing, it became his ruin. Absalom was killed, his army was defeated, and peace was restored to the kingdom, and Solomon inherited the throne from David, not Absalom. Now, we know that David did not react very well to, to Absalom's death, but nevertheless, the Lord did give him victory and brought peace and security to the kingdom once again. His prayer was answered. The Lord fought for him, and David's life and kingdom were preserved. So that's the first point, the evicted king. The second point is the victorious king. When we read the Psalms, it's important to remember that they have been edited into a certain order. There has been intention in the way that the Psalms have been put together in certain clusters. And we see in the early Psalms one such cluster of similar themes. That's why Psalm 3 and 4 read as almost the same exact Psalm and many others after it. So I want you to consider Psalms 3 and 4 also with Psalm 2 and the contrast that is created by the text of these Psalms. Because if you think about it in Psalm 2, we have a strong statement of the Lord's anointed, which is his king, his Davidic king, David and his sons who sit on the throne forever. And Psalm 2 says it's vain. 
It's useless. It's pointless. It's foolishness to oppose the Lord's anointed because God's made an eternal decree about him. And yet, immediately after Psalm 2, which says it's ridiculous to oppose the king, we see in Psalms 3 and 4 the king being doubted, the king being rejected, the king being evicted, the king being shamed. But we also see that King David prevailed in Psalm 3. It is vain to oppose God's anointed one. And so therefore we need to see that there is a victorious king in Psalm 3. And this points us on to something greater, David's greater son. Who is the Lord's anointed? Remember, anointed in English is what in Hebrew? Hamashiach, the Messiah, which is in Greek, the Christ. So anointed, Messiah, Christ, all the same word, just three different languages. It's foolishness to resist or oppose the Lord's anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? The sons of David, that line terminates in David's greater son, who is Jesus Christ. And so we ought to read Psalm 3 in light of Jesus Christ and as a psalm that describes Jesus Christ in a very particular way. Jesus Christ, by his very name, you can hear it in his name, Jesus, the anointed one, is God in the flesh, God incarnate, truly God and truly man, who became man to save man from sin. He is God and he is man. He is God with us. And Jesus Christ gave up his life. He took on flesh so that he could offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross, as a substitute, so that when he spilled his precious blood, it would wash away the sins of all who trust in him and believe in his name and call upon his name, and it would constitute them perfectly righteous as his obedience, his righteousness, is attributed to those ones who believe in him. Their sins are forgiven, and his righteousness is is given to them, attributed to them, imputed to them, and they are robed in his perfect righteousness. And in the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, his new life afterwards, we see his victory despite the disbelief and the opposition of many others. And so what Psalm 3 describes to us is not just the life of David, but also the life of Jesus Christ, especially from Gethsemane to Gabbatha to Golgotha. And we ought to read Psalm 3 from that Perspective. So look at it again with me. Verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Don't we see in the passion of our Lord in Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha, a swelling of the enemies of Jesus Christ? Satan enters into Judas. And it says this is the hour of darkness. So the the forces of darkness, Satan and his demons, they are attacking at this moment. And we see the Jews are attacking at this moment. And we see that the Gentile rulers and the Romans are attacking at this moment. All of the peoples, both visible and invisible, are swelling and surrounding our Lord to attack him. How many are my foes? And on the cross, as people walked by, what did they do? It says they wagged their heads. They were ashamed of him. And they said, if he's the son of God, let him come down. 
Let him save himself. There is no salvation for him in God. So the doubting and ridiculing of the son of David in Psalm 3 verses 1 and 2 is describing the life of Jesus Christ from the garden to the cross. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He was a victim only in a very qualified sense. He was actually a victor. And he cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Because he also knew the promises of God. As David commended himself to God in Psalm 3, knowing God's promises to him, so also Jesus commended himself to God, knowing God's promises to him. What promises? Promises such as Isaiah 53, where it says, when he has poured out his life as a ransom for many, when he has poured out his life, then his life will be prolonged. He shall see many days. So Jesus knew, if I pour out my life as a sacrifice, I will receive resurrected, eternal, glorious life. And trusting in that promise, he commends his life into the hands of God, his Father. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Jesus offers his life and commends his spirit. Did Jesus die and remain in the grave? No. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Jesus died, and he rose from the dead, victorious and glorious, because God had promised in uh, Psalm 16 that his Holy One would not see corruption, that he would be raised from Hades, raised from Sheol. And indeed, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these promises are fulfilled, these prayers are answered, and Jesus victoriously rises from the dead. And from that point forward, Is Jesus hunted and persecuted and opposed and crucified again? No. Rather, we see a victorious conqueror. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Jesus is glorified and exalted as he ascends to the Father's right hand and sits down with his enemies being made his footstool. Psalm 3, therefore, shows us the life of David in a particular moment, Absalom's revolt but it also shows us the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both were evicted kings. Jesus is sent out of the city to be crucified, but both were triumphant kings. And the beauty of Psalm 3, as with so many others, is that we get to read it from David's perspective as well as David's greater son's perspective, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's beautiful to read these psalms and see our Savior there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Is that what we see in Psalm 3 and in the life and the death and the new life of Jesus Christ? Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's exactly what we see. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, there's a third way in which we ought to read this psalm, which leads to our third point, the convicted conscience. The convicted conscience conscience. We need to place ourselves in Psalm 3. We need to read Psalm 3 and consider ourselves in relation to it either as those who are in Jesus Christ, and by in Jesus Christ I mean trusting in him, believing in him, and those who are out 
of Jesus Christ, by which I mean those who do not trust in Christ, those who do not believe in his name. We see David talking about that swelling and surrounding of enemies and threats against him, and that eviction and expulsion from the kingdom. And we ought to see ourselves in this by recognizing that it is our sin that expels us from God's presence. It is our sin that evicts us from God's holy presence. We have sung this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty from Isaiah. And we who are sinful cannot draw near to the presence of an infinitely and perfectly holy God. And so our sins surround us and our sins attack us and our sins threaten us and our sins condemn us. And it becomes a giant army, doesn't it? That long list of all your sins, both secret and known, inward and outward, all of them are laid bare before the eyes of God. The full extent of your unholiness is known to God, and it expels you from his presence. But we're different from David in that his eviction was unjust, whereas our expulsion, our banishment from God's presence, is perfectly just. Why should we as sinners, as those who are unholy, be welcomed into his presence. We don't belong on his holy hill. We do not belong in his holy presence. We do not enjoy his favor as those who rebel against him and hate him and refuse to bow the knee before his son, Jesus Christ. And so because we are evicted from his presence as a result of our sins, what is the result? It's a convicted conscience. I know I am sinful. I know I am sinful. Indeed, I am exceedingly sinful. If I peer inward into my, into my being, I see it covered with the mud and muck of sin in every part. My thoughts are sinful. My words are sinful. My deeds are sinful. I do what I ought not to do, and I don't do what I ought to do. In every way, outwardly and inwardly, I sin. It is my nature. I am born a sinner. And God's law tells me what is good and right and holy. And in comparison to that good and perfect and holy law, I see I am a sinner. It convicts me. It condemns me. And my sins surround me. O oh Lord, how many are my sins. Many are rising against me. My sins are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Well, where can the convicted conscience go for relief? Where can the convicted conscience go for forgiveness and cleansing? We have to look to the one who can save to the one who can forgive, to the one who can cleanse. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. The convicted conscience cries out for salvation. And we do this not abstractly or disconnectedly. We cry out for salvation because we have seen the victorious King Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead to save his people from their sins. We have seen him triumph over all his enemies, over death, over the devil, and all our wicked deeds. We have seen him free his people from their sins and give them a new life, a new spiritual life, and perfect forgiveness covenanted to them. This is my covenant with you. I will remember your sins no more. And all of this is found in the precious blood of of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Salvation is in the son of David, the triumphant king, and his victorious resurrection. And so when we cry out to God, O oh God, save me, 
We cry out in Christ's name, for Christ's sake, because I trust in Jesus. Oh, hear me, oh my God, and save me. Forgive me of my sins. I believe in Jesus Christ. I receive Jesus Christ by faith. I rest upon Jesus Christ by faith. And in no one else and nothing else, oh Lord, save me. And what is our refrain after this? Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. And if God is our salvation, we can lie down and sleep in peace. Someone who lies down and sleeps in peace in the midst of great turmoil and affliction and adversity and uncertainty, such as David in the wilderness, does that remind you of someone else who lay down and slept and everyone said, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? We're perishing. Jesus slept peacefully in the boat. David slept peacefully in the wilderness. So also the Christian sleeps peacefully in the conscience. The Christian has peace in the conscience because our sins are forgiven in the blood and the sacrificial body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then we can say, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid of many thousands of thousands of sins that have set themselves against me all around. My past returns to my mind and I think, those sins cannot condemn me. I have repented. I have believed in Jesus Christ. I've turned from them. I've received mercy and forgiveness. So as you read Psalm 3, do you see yourself in it in Christ or out of Christ? Is your conscience convicted by all your sin? Do you understand the depth of your wickedness in the light of God's holiness? Do you understand your separation from God because of your unholiness and unrighteousness? You see, the one who reads Psalm 3 outside of Christ can't get past verse 2. The one who reads Psalm 3 out of Christ, not believing in Christ, not trusting in Jesus, can't get past verse 2. They remain desperate, evicted, hunted, surrounded, besieged, and beset on all sides by sin and guilt and the sure and certain judgment that they deserve. But the one who says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, and reads Psalm 3 in Christ, knows that they have salvation and forgiveness and righteousness in Jesus. And this rescues them. It restores them to the kingdom. It restores them to God's presence. And it salves the conscience. It's a, an ointment. It gives us peace and security. And the conscience moves from conviction and condemnation to peace and security. All is well with me and my God. When we see ourselves in Psalm 3, in Christ, we exclaim, salvation belongs to the Lord. Please consider with me three applications. <clears throat> Number one, choose your king carefully. Psalm 3 is an excellent psalm for a baptism. Maybe that's why I chose it. Psalm 3 represents varying views on the Davidic king. Is he, who, who, whom shall we serve, Absalom or David? So there's differences of perspective. Baptism is a taking sides. It's a clear choosing. 
Baptism is a taking the side of Jesus Christ completely and irrevocably. As we've said at previous baptisms, there is no going back. Baptism is a declaration of faith in Jesus Christ and belonging to Jesus Christ. Why is it? It is a declaration of our faith in Christ and belonging to him because before that, it is a picture of the life and the death and the new life of Jesus Christ. Christ passed through death and unto life for us. He was buried and rose from the dead. And baptism is a picture of Christ's death and new life for us and our salvation. And so the one who follows in that image, the one who follows in that sacrament, in that visible word and promise, is saying, I'm on his side. I am a new creature, a new creation. I belong to Jesus. I am buried with him in the likeness of his death. And I will be raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So it's only our taking sides or our profession of faith secondarily because primarily and principally it is a picture of Jesus and what he has done. And therefore to enter into the waters is to say, I believe, I trust, I am one of his. The one who is baptized is saying, I am convicted of my sin. I am surrounded by it and I need salvation. And the one who is baptized is saying, this is, The life and the death and the new life of Christ is the only way that I can obtain and enjoy and possess forever everlasting life. It is in the evicted but victorious king that I find my salvation. He went through death unto life and so do I. Now David and Absalom are a picture of Jesus Christ and Satan. Satan is a subverter, a usurper, a deceiver, a liar, a traitor, a would-be king, one who would seek to seize dominion and authority and control by surreptitious and wicked means. And there are people who would be bedazzled and who would say, but it seems he is so powerful. Choose your side, subtle deceiver and traitor or victorious king risen from the dead. But we must be careful here not to suggest that there is some kind of neutral ground, as though we are waiting to choose Satan or Jesus Christ. The fact is we are all born into this world as those who are the offspring of Satan. John calls them in his epistles the children of the devil. And so the fact is choosing your king carefully is really about rejecting Satan and embracing Jesus Christ by faith. And indeed, throughout the history of the church, baptism has often been accompanied by an explicit denial of the devil and his works. And even if we don't use those words, that is part of what baptism is. I am on the side of Jesus Christ, who who stepped and stomped on the head of Satan. And so I denounce and disclaim the, the devil and all of his wicked deeds and demons. Baptism is choosing your king and saying, I am with Jesus Christ. He raises his banner on God's hill and the nations flock to him. The prophets say, I'm going to him. His flag is there. He is there. I will fall at his feet. You must realize if you do not fall at his feet, if you do not bow before him, you have already made your choice. You were born into Satan. He is your king. 
Denounce him, disclaim him, deny him, and name the name of Jesus Christ. Choose your king carefully. Deceiver and usurper, ancient serpent, or God in the flesh, victorious and glorious forevermore. Secondly, follow the king boldly. Psalm 3 represents a moment in time of uncertainty. Who will win? Absalom or David. So there is doubt about the king. But we have that great privilege of living in a, at a point in time where the jury's not deliberating. We're not waiting to see what will happen to David's greater son. Well, I'm waiting to see what Jesus does to see whether or not I ought to trust in him. But rather, we live on this side of the resurrection. Jesus has died, and he has risen from the dead. And we find in the history of the church a transformation that took place in the life of Jesus' people after his resurrection. Think of the pre-resurrection apostles and the post-resurrection apostles. Pre-resurrection, what do the apostles do? They scatter. They flee. They deny Jesus. They hide. But post-resurrection, they are bold as lions. And the Jewish rulers say, stop teaching in his name stop doing things in his name and they say we will not stop for anything or anyone they were transformed why because jesus had risen from the dead and they saw him and beheld him and heard him and touched him as john says in first john it was the resurrection of christ as he swallowed up death by his victory that transformed their lives to make them as bold as lions for jesus christ Salvation belongs to the Lord. And those who emerge from the baptismal waters likewise ought to be bold and say, My king is king of all. My king is triumphant. My king is my savior. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has triumphed. And as David said, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. And isn't that very mindset exactly what we've been learning from First Peter where Peter says, go out into the world, live for Jesus Christ, be the best husbands, be the best workers, or be the best bosses, be the best people and citizens that you can. And if your holiness brings persecution on you, bear it with joy and patience. Be bold for the Lord. Do not be afraid. Peter said, fear not their fear, nor be afraid of them, nor be anxious because of them. Just as David says in Psalm 3, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. They want to shame our Lord or be ashamed of our Lord. They will because they do not love him or believe in him. But we will not be ashamed. Follow the king boldly. The king says, we're going to battle. Follow me. I have the flag. And we don't say, ah, I don't know. Satan looks awfully strong. He's got a pretty big army. There's more of them out of the church than in the church right now. Um, I'm not sure. No, follow the king boldly. No fear, no holding back. And not only can you live for Christ confidently or boldly, you can die in Christ confidently. I wouldn't suggest that you die boldly, but that you die confidently, believingly. I lay down and slept. I woke again. Jesus rose from the dead. He gave us eternal life. And so for us, Death is a lying down and sleep and an awakening, an awakening of the soul immediately, and one day an awakening of the body. 
And so last week in 1 Peter, we talked about that phrase, the, the end is drawing near, the end is near. So for us, there, that phrase is understood very differently than it is for others. If you tell two prisoners the end is near, for one it means the end of your imprisonment and suffering is here, your release is at hand, the end is near is the best news for them. But for the other prisoner, if it's you are being kept and reserved for judgment and execution, the end is near, that's a very different mindset, isn't it? Oh no, dread, fear. For us, we can say, I lay down and slept and I woke again because my death is my release. My death is the end of my suffering. Because Jesus was victorious, I can live for him boldly and confidently, and I can die in him peacefully and sweetly. Thirdly and lastly, praise the king loudly. Psalm 3 concludes with an exclamation of praise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this refrain, this exclamation of praise, is reused in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1, where it says this, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They're repeating the refrain from Psalm 3, Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to Jehovah. So if it is good enough for the saints and multitudes in heaven to praise God by, then we also ought to praise God. And it says, with a loud voice, they praise God with this refrain. So also Psalm 3 ought to give us an example of praising God with a loud voice. I encourage you, when we sing God's praises in church, sing with a loud voice that matches what our great and glorious God has done for us. Salvation belongs to the Lord, so let us sing his praises with joy. Not, holy, holy, sing unto the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The one who is baptized is saying that very thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord, therefore I enter these waters. Salvation belongs to the Lord, therefore I join myself to his church. Salvation belongs to the Lord, so I will persevere in him by his grace and arrive at that heavenly home. Let the one who is baptized join all the baptized, all the people of Christ, to proclaim hallelujah, praise God, salvation and glory and power belong to our Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for the suffering and the death and the subsequent glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you preserved David and gave him victory, so you preserved David's greater son and gave him victory. And in him, we are victorious. Indeed, your, your scripture, your holy writing, tells us that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. You have given to us everything by giving us the Son. And so we thank you and we praise you that salvation belongs to you and that we have received it freely by grace. It has been given unto us as a gift from you in Jesus Christ. And we have received it by faith 
with open, empty hands. Oh, Lord, bless us. Give us joy. Help us to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, boldly and confidently. And we pray that you would draw all peoples to your Son by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they too may taste and see that the Lord is good and enjoy his salvation now and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name.